This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And at Zupan's right now, as you know, it's strawberry season, which is one of the most exciting times in Oregon. And unless you've lived in Oregon, you don't know what, what you're missing. Um, you know, right through the many varieties of strawberries, including hoods. And I'm not so sure that they have hoods um, at Zupan's right now, but they do have uh they do have plenty of delicious strawberries. I just bought some, um, some from Salvi Island. And even if you go to Zupan's uh, website, zupansmarkets.com, you're going to see how to store strawberries so you get the most out of them. So it says right here, and we know, some people know this, some don't. Store in a colander or in the fridge for air circulation. Don't wash them until you're ready to eat them and then enjoy them. Pull them out and enjoy them at room temperature for optimal flavor. Zupans wants you to enjoy your excellent food as much as possible. And Chris, I am looking at this. They, so they do have uh, various varieties, including the hood. They've got the sweet sunrise and then uh, coming soon, something called the Albion. Right. And given that we're looking at a little information from a few days ago, they may be there right now. Yeah, that's right. While you're uh, looking at strawberries, why not, why not take a look at their vine ripened tomatoes? Uh, are you a big tomato guy, Chris? I love tomatoes, yes. And I don't know what would constitute a big tomato guy. My size or my interest in tomatoes or how often I have them. But yes, I do love them. And they're delicious here. They've got in your local Zupans, Liberty Harvest, grown right here in Oregon in Dundee by a husband and wife duo, Kobe and Emily Croft. Uh, these are sweet garden tomato flavored, uh, perfect for anything summer. Like think about the uh, barbecues that you're going to have. You're grilling up a burger. You want to put a delicious uh, tomato on that. Uh, you should, uh, you know, check these things out. And again, Zupan's doing us a solid by helping us know the best way to store and serve tomatoes. So you should enjoy tomatoes at room temperature for optimal flavor. Right. And so I would just suggest everybody go to Zupan's.com. And sign up for their news feed because you'll see what else is in store right now. Lots of fun things in the spring coming into summer that are that are going to be in season. So see that. But also don't forget on the news feed, you're generally getting some incredible deal um, that yeah, I access as, as I'm walking in the store. What do I get free today? That's exactly so, right. And so that's good advice. Uh, to check in and subscribe on their newsfeed or go to any one of their three stores, Court, where would they be? West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. All right, here it is. It's time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. Hello, Court Johnson. There in, where are you in Tiger or Portland right now? I'm in uh, Portland proper today. I drove into the, uh, the studios. It took me about twice as long as usual because as many people know, uh, traffic is returning to the freeways. So that's, I guess, a good thing and a bad thing for people who go downtown to work. Um, there's, there's no doubt about that court. And you're, you know, on your way to work at alpha media, have you moved as, has the company moved yet? No. And, uh, now, now we're, there's talk that we're not necessarily going to move. So I, I don't know. I, I, okay. I'm downtown. Um, life is slowly returning to downtown. Some of the, some of the restaurants that uh, have been shut down or 
have been partially closed are starting to open up more, uh, which is nice. The food carts in our area uh, are starting to have longer hours. So it's it's been nice. It's been nice. Yeah, it's, get, it's getting back to uh, some semblance of normalcy. Um, but I will agree with you on the traffic. Oh, last Friday I was in town and started my, making my way back out to the coast at about four. And, oh, my God. The you know, 217 was closed. Then the surface streets were terrible. It was, uh, but I never, I really don't complain about traffic because I spent years commuting in long traffic in Connecticut. So whenever I'm in it one time for an hour longer than I want to be, I, I just go with it and listen to music. And as long as I'm not in a rush, I'm okay. Yeah, I think uh, the the advent, this digital world we live in, when you can, you know, you can kind of be more selective. You're not at the mercy of whatever's on the radio. You can, uh, you know, pull up your favorite podcast, like right at the fork and listen to the latest episode while you're stuck in traffic. Why not just do that? And, and, and you can even click easily while you're driving. You can click subscribe right. and rate or whatever it takes. You could do that, too. So, yes. But I'm, I, isn't it blasphemous for you to say you're not at the mercy of your local radio station? That's what you do. Well, I, the, I, it, it's a double-edged short sword. It's a double-edged sword, Chris, because I, I recognize that like that people have so many options with us, and we're we're very much aware as radio stations that the biggest competition is no longer a radio station across the street that might share the same format. It's it's people's phones, and it's the oh, it, big time. That, that's your I, that's I your real competition. Really, but but yeah, I think I've never thought about that. So all of a sudden, program directors and all the executives at radio stations. Really don't give a shit what's going on at the other groups or the other stations, I would imagine. Yeah, they probably do care, but it's that's not the problem. Yeah, not in, in, not in the same way. So so now the approach is, and this very much is what we try to uh, address you know, in how we handle kink, is despite all of that, uh, people still go to radio for certain things, uh, lo- you know, conversations about localness. So uh, on kink, we're always talking about Portland. We're talking about the Pacific Northwest. And then it is about music discovery. And that's something that there, there's algorithms that the Spotify's and, and the Apple music that they use to help feed you new music. But um, to have a, a real DJ that's live pop on the air and, and play a new song and t- tell you why they think it's great. That's the approach we take. So that's the way we're trying to tackle it. Uh, but, you know, but we, we, so, rec- we recognize there's a lot more competition today than there was even just five years ago. Oh, for sure. I mean, I used to be in that business too, selling it. So we were selling against TV at the time. Yeah. But let me ask you this, and you, you don't have to share confidential information, but generally speaking, what kind of audience does radio, commercial radio have now versus what it had 15, 20 years ago? Do you know? Is it down 50%? I can't imagine it's not down 50% um, with, all, with all these options. I mean, I can't even listen to Sirius XM because I don't want to hear jocks talk right. and promos for upcoming programs. I just want to hear music. I, I think you're, I'd be kidding myself if I said that it's, I mean, cause the, you know, there's, there's uh there's trade groups and all this stuff that say more people are listening to radio than ever. I don't, I don't believe that's necessarily true. Well, actually, I don't believe that's true at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, I think people are tuning, tuning in. I don't think they're tuning in for as long as, as they used to. I, I think the bigger issue is I look at my own daughters, you know, I've got a 13 year old and a, and a 16 year old. They, they do not treat radio the way we ever did and probably won't ever. They don't, they don't see it as a, 
an, a, a, necess- a need, a, a, a necessity in their life. And so it's really that younger demo. We're starting to see huge erosion in the 18 to 30-year-old and yeah, because they never had it in their yeah. lives. So if you never had it, you're not going to seek it out. Yeah, and so that, that I think those are the upcoming big challenges for for radio companies, which is why. Well, it's just going to become podcasts, and you know sure. we we we've mentioned this before. When we started this in 2014, we had to tell people what a podcast was and how to access it, and you know that that was clear. Most people didn't know what it was. And now you and I are happy just to maintain our listenership over eight years because just like think, uh, we recognize people have a lot of choices out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I guess I would end this part of the conversation is I, I, I still believe that there, there is value in local free radio that, uh, cause at the end of the day, that like the radio, it does not cost you anything if you've got a if you're able to tune us in it doesn't cost you a dime to to listen to us so i think there is value in it and you know and I, ho- hopefully you know some of the challenges that uh that radio might have now they they sort out and i guess probably to your point that's why you see a lot of these companies shifting into other realms of audio which is you know mainly podcasting so all right. I'm going to disagree with you, though. I think it does cost you something because it costs you your peace and quiet. It costs you your your psychological um, uh, framework when you have to constantly hear commercial messages. It is it is. Oh, and, you know, we know it exists. But, you know, as a baseball fan, listening to the promos and the constant fucking liberty mutual commercials liberty liberty <laughs> i that to me is not free well that is that's not freeing sports sports broadcasting uh in fact i've i've kind of thought of this thing that I, I i want i think there needs to be a saturday night live sketch of just the ridiculousness of how sports broadcasting has become where everything quite literally everything is now sponsored <laughs> Right, it's like, an ad. Yeah, it, like everything that's is an third, ad. That's the third pitch of the fifth inning, sponsored yeah. by Fifth Third Bank. Yeah, exa- no, they, they they do that. It's it's like, yeah. oh, today's streaker running across the field is brought to you by Yeah, no, well, radio's the worst at that, because I watch, and this is, we're just talking about baseball or sports, but I watch TV, and I've listened to an occasional game on the radio. Radio is horrible, man. They've sold out every single thing. Sure. Whereas TV, it's a little less. But I'm just going to do one little more rant for people who probably don't give a shit and are waiting to hear from Brooke Jackson Glidden of Eater. Um, now that we're coming out of the clouds and hopefully into something sunnier. But my rant is, anybody who's a baseball fan who's listening may or may not agree with this, but the MLB package between innings on the Mets games, they run these absolutely obnoxious promos where they crank up the volume and they start with this horrible boo no no and then they play highlights with announcers screaming of other teams like the Yankees. I'm a Mets fan. And the Angels and the Cubs all their highlights of great things happening while their announcers are screaming how great it is. I just want, it's baseball. I just want some peace between the innings, not that. So I find myself jumping up, not even jumping up. I keep the remote nearby or even in my pocket 
as soon as that last pitch, uh, the last out happens, mute. And so half of the game I'm muted because I forget to turn it back on. But anyway, that's my rant. And I've written Major League Baseball and I've heard nothing back. But Court, you're a, you're a uh, uh, I know at least an NBA fan. Would you want to watch a game and then 50 times a game see highlights screaming at you from other teams? Well, I, I do got to say, because I, you know, me, me being a Utah Jazz fan living in the Pacific Northwest, I've I've, I've had to subscribe to the uh, the NBA package. The so I so I that that's how I am able to watch all the games uh, because of the pace of the game. I don't I don't get fed that nearly as much as it sounds like the MLB is doing, just because baseball. Oh yeah, well, it's, base, it's between every inning yeah. and every pitching change. Yeah, there's more. There's it's just a slower pace, which is just interesting to me. Uh, to to your point. I mean, like baseball has a very, very specific. Uh, it's a it's an experience that you're having, whether you're watching it on TV or watching it in a stadium, as compared to baseball or excuse me, basketball, which is more fast paced. There's not as right. ma- not as many breaks. But I I guess to answer your question, at halftime, it's 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 almost they must be doing the exact same thing. So somebody's copying the other one, where it does get louder. It's super. It's super hypey. And it's showing highlights from across the the league, and be, you know me being a Utah Jazz fan, ninety nine point nine percent of it has nothing to do with Utah Jazz. I'm just like, I don't know, just show me the highlights from what from last week's Jazz game or the highlights right. from the because they can do all that, but they but they don't. Well, so. this but this is also the same ones over and over again, and it's not it's even worse. It's not even that I don't care. It's that I don't want to see Yankee success and Angel. I don't. I'm not rooting against them, but it doesn't do anything for me, but just annoy me. Right. So I don't, you know, to see Aaron Judge hitting a, a giant home run and, and the Yankee announcer screaming about it 20 times a game, in addition to 20, 40 other highlights, I'm just like, I, I can't believe anybody's actually thinking at Major League Baseball or any, they had a meeting to say, is this what we really need to do? Is this, is this going to accomplish anything? to put these highlights on all year long. I mean, by the end of the season, you're talking about 10,000 of those highlights oh, that yeah. someone would have seen. Yep. So uh, anyway, what good does it do? So it just pisses me off. Do I turn it off and leave? No, I just work around it. It took me a while to find the best workaround that works for me. Sure. But, um, but at any rate, oh God! If I, you can decide whether to delete that or not. Oh no! This but, is this is important. I just don't think it was the uh, intro that Brooke was expecting. Yeah, probably. So if she's not listening, she knows to. Uh, if she's listening, she knows to go ahead, or anybody else. But anyway, you know, this is our lives, and sure, you know, I get a chance. We've been pandemically uh, isolated, so. Uh, it's not that I don't have friends that I rant to or my girlfriend but uh, or my kids, but it's nice to rant to you too. And it's really, uh, it's great that you agree with me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. You, you and I, we live really tough lives is what is basically what we're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, and so what we didn't talk about, and I'm not going to go into it, but as you know, I, I did, uh, we bid farewell to my sweet doggy Oakley on Monday. And uh, we'll talk about that sometime. I just we were going to talk about it at more length instead of baseball and radio, um, but right now it's not. It's too raw. It was two days ago, and um, big part of my life for 17 years. Just quickly from the um, from a rel- from a time 
a relative time standpoint, Oakley came into our lives during the Bush Kerry debates. Wow. Just to give you an idea how long ago that yeah. was. So he provided so much. I'm at peace with it. I mean, I have my moments, but I'm at peace. But at any rate, that was sad. And we recorded this podcast uh, Sunday, the day before we um, we called the, well, we, I called the vet earlier, but we had um, my dear friend, Matt Didley, come over and, and handle things. So I was, um, I did okay, but I was, it was kind of a weird day to be doing a podcast. Uh, but we, we, first time we've recorded one on a weekend because we wanted to work around Brooke's schedule to make sure we could have her. And anybody who doesn't know by now, uh, who's listening to this podcast, who would be into the Portland food scene, Brooke Jackson Glidden is the editor of Eater. And you can look back from the first podcast we had with her to find out exactly how long ago that was. But I believe it was probably two or three years ago that she took over from Maddie. And she loves the job. She's highly qualified, having worked at the Boston Globe and the Salem the Salem newspaper. Is it coming to mind? Salem? The Statesman, Statesman Journal. Journal. Yep. Right. So she cut her teeth there. Um, and she's a journalist at heart. And we talk in this podcast about some of the uh, the lines that she's had to skirt between criticism and journalism and reporting. And so I find that very interesting. And, you know, a lot of what she's done in the last year is strictly reporting. And uh, she's using some of her, she used a lot of her uh, research and um, research skills to cover a lot of what was going on in food which had a lot to do with government so um so we talk a little bit about coming it's the first time we've chatted with her since the pandemic started we're going to hear some of her places that she's most excited about some of the places that she's uh, most disappointed are not open again um and she's always an interesting person to chat with because she's very articulate, very well spoken, and I'm always impressed. And I, you know, I don't mean to sound like reverse ageism here, but I'm always so impressed with how, let's put it this way, how much further advanced intellectually she is at her age than I ever was along the way. But especially, oh my God, I, I don't think I could have formulated opinions and and on the fly been as articulate as she is when she talks about many of the issues that we always discuss on the podcast. So um, it was really nice to have her back. She's uh, She does a great job. She's got a lot of pressure on her too, because there isn't, as we discussed, there, there isn't a lot of other food media. Is it there aren't or there isn't? There aren't a lot of other food media um, out there. And uh, there's some but it's not what it used to be. And uh, so there's a lot of pressure on her as the eater editor to uh, to get things right. And of course, as we've experienced on the podcast over the last year, it wasn't really an uplifting, fun thing to be covering the Portland food world uh, over the past year. But we're happy. We're 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 optimistic. Things are going to get better. And she points that out. We also talk about the industry as a whole. And how it might survive some of the issues that um, challenge it right now. So I think it's uh, it's a great listen. I hope people have stayed 
tuned through our intro and our commercials. Listen, by the way, to get back to this, our commercials are categorically specific, and we like to think that people want to go to Zupans and Ringside and buy Finex cookware because they're listening to this podcast. So they're, they're unlike the commercials I mentioned earlier in the promos, I like to think we're very proud that we have advertisers and sponsors that people would be interested in. Well, I, I, it would be, be horrible for me to disagree with you on that, Chris. Yeah, yeah no, I, I strongly believe it. So, and, and I'll say one more time, I appreciate that they've stuck with us, not only for years before the uh, pandemic, but right through the pandemic. So, um, and so, uh, by the way, our listeners, that they've stuck with us through the pandemic, because I can imagine too, there were other places to go and think about, but we're hopeful. Well, people are now really curious about what's open, who the new, who's doing new things, what's exciting. And, um, and so uh, they'll be listening to the podcast again and probably spending a little more time with Eater PDX. And what better way than to listen to the editor at large um, of Portland's Eater PDX than listening to this interview with Brooke right now. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets. Portland Food Adventures. Ready to break out and travel to some of the world's most delicious destinations? Portland Food Adventures has space available on two trips in 2022. To Basque Country in Spain with Chef Javier Canteras of Urdaneta. Also, if you've never experienced Italy with Austria Enzyme, join Chris for the most delicious nine days in Western Sicily imaginable. Info at portlandfoodadventures.com. And by... Finex Cast Iron Cookware Company. Finex is built for those that believe details make the difference. Whether crafting cookware or cooking a meal, attention to detail can elevate the everyday into something extraordinary. Finex pays attention to detail to bring you inspiration and tools for a lifetime of meals and memories. Make the everyday extraordinary. Find out more at FinexUSA.com. How are you doing with being in your... How that's a nice apartment you have there. It's always yeah. nice. It's one of the nice things about doing the podcast via Zoom. It's a little different than being in the studio. I like the studio, but this is cool. Yeah, you kind of get a little peek into my life a little bit. Yeah, and my uh... and mine, but mine is like set up to look. It's not. Yeah, it's a long story, but yeah. Got the books and stuff though. That's cool. I think you can kind of see a little bit of art in the background. I cannot right. Well, the but, books are all bullshit for me, but the records are all mine. Yeah, see, so, and they they look good. I, I have like five records. I need to build my record collection. What do you got there? What do I got? You want me to just pick out a random one? Yeah, sure. All right. Tell me to go right or left? Left. Left. All right. Here we go. Tower of Power. Oh, so, I, have no idea I don't know. So this all goes back to the 70s, mostly 70s, 80s. I got my Pioneer turntable over there. So th okay. these are real. 
Yeah. But anyway, it's nice to do once in a while. I still like my Spotify. Yeah. All right. So um, thank you, by the way, for doing this. We're fitting yeah. this in on a, is it raining in Portland? It's pouring out here. Yeah, it's definitely raining here. We were supposed to go to a backyard barbecue, but I don't think it's going to exist. In like yeah. Two hours. Yeah. Well, so you're in the house. So how's it been being a writer for Eater for the last year, kind of relegated to your home? You know, it's um, it's a really bizarre thing to be uh, working as a food writer now, um, just because, you know, in early March and really for all of 2020 after that point, I was, you know, I always have said that like food writing and being a food journalist is being a courts reporter, is being a, you know, a beat reporter in every sense, an ad reporter, a tech reporter. Um, but, you know, this, <laughs> before this period of time, I wasn't often in press conferences or, you know, Zoom press conferences with the governor on a regular basis, right. you know, that, that is something, at least not in my capacity as a food writer. So, you know, you're covering health and public health and state and city government in a way that just hasn't been a part of it. So, you know, in certain it, ways. It wasn't part of the food world that right? it was about where to go get great food and who's doing what. Right. And, you know, I think that it's, you know, I've used public documents to report before, but it wasn't like a daily part of my life, you know? Right. So I think um, it's, it was a weird sort of position to be in because you are behaving as sort of, you're telling people where to go to eat, right? You're going, who's doing takeout, who's open, you know, you're doing that kind of work, but you're also doing this like, okay, what are the state regulations in terms of what restaurants can do or what people can do at restaurants? So you're doing that, you're doing the workers' rights stories and sort of the you know, you know, uh, which workplaces are having outbreaks, you're doing that kind of stuff, or following it at least. And, you know, you're, so it's, it's, you know, and then the added sort of element of, you know, talking to people who are experiencing sort of the worst period of their lives, you know, talking to chefs who have lost family members, writing obits, writing the obit, for Alfredo Camacho was like awful. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, I would never um, compare my experience to what it's like to actually work in the service industry right now. I think it's uh -huh. just harder and I, I have absolute empathy for everyone who's had to work in the last year. I will, or, you know, has struggled to find work in the last year or pay bills. Um, I, but it has been the sort of um, marathon of reporting because you feel this obligation to make sure that you're covering things right um, and trying to sort of do this period justice, especially in terms of the people who are experiencing it in such a profound way. So it's been a little bit of a marathon. I think that's the word I'll use. It's a marathon and I, you know, it's... Um having produced this podcast throughout that whole period. I mean, in the beginning, it was talking about talking to people about what they were experiencing and how they anticipated getting through this and without really knowing. 
But there came a point where, oh my, I don't, there aren't really many positive, there aren't many fun stories. And you know, this, Eater's a little different, but the podcast is supposed to be evergreen. So to find stories that people want to refer to in 2024, that became virtually impossible. But we're, st I, anyway, we're starting to feel that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and covering some good things that are happening. And uh, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about, too. Yeah. I wanted to cover some of the good things that are happening that you see. Also, some of the things personally you, you know, you've established relationships with people in the industry over the years, and you got to be pretty sad about some of the people we'll never either see opening a restaurant anymore or even in town any longer. So, or in the industry, you know, a lot of people are out of the industry. So, um, yeah. where would you like to start? Um, well, I think I'm trying to decide if I want to rip the Band-Aid off and go through some of the sort of places I've been mourning and then get into the stuff that makes me hopeful and optimistic. I think that's probably how we should do it. Let's start so with, no, yeah, no, no. Like, well, let's start with the hopeful, optimistic stuff and then go to that. Okay. Because, okay. because I think that would be of interest to a lot of people where they can go now and what they can look forward sure. to. And then we can both bemoan some of totally. the things that have happened. Absolutely. Um, so there are quite a few places that have opened really recently that have been extremely exciting, which feels so, <laughs> it's it's such a relief after such a painful year. Um, and I, to know they can stay open, that, yes. that this isn't gonna be a, a start and stop situation necessarily. Yeah. Right, yeah, it seems like things are generally heading upward, which is great. Um, I think one of my favorite new restaurants is really a pivot. Uh, I, we all hate that word at this point, but I don't know how else to describe it. Right. <laughs> It's um, is Fairweather, which is Jacqueline, uh, you know, they shifted their seafood menu and now they're doing brunch and it's pretty much a brunch cafe. And it is maybe one of my new favorite brunches in Portland. It might be my favorite brunch in Portland. I've gone a number of times um, since they've started doing it. And I'm just always really pleased. Um, you know, the coffee is push pull, which I love their coffee. Um, they do these really who's lovely pastries. I'm sorry. Who's oh, coffee? This is Jacqueline Clinton. No, no, no. But so, who's coffee? The coffee is. Oh, push by pull. Push, push X pull. I should actually oh, know. How okay. That's but, one but, I yeah. hadn't heard of. They do really great natural process coffees. They do like, I just think they're the drip you get with your food is so great. And I've noticed that the folks there, they do a really good job of a, I mean, of course they incorporate seafood in a really smart way and the seafood's always super fresh and delicious. Um, but they also are really great at using like peak, peak, peak seasonal produce. So mm -hmm. they make this like pork belly, snap pea sort of thing that you would kind of eat in place of bacon, I guess. And mm -hmm. it has like this sort of fish saucy kind of caramel situation going on. It's so delicious. Um, their take on a Dungeness Benedict is great. Um, and I can't stop thinking about the strawberry toast I had there with those perfect little hood strawberries right to the center. Um, so I, I really like that place. I think it's really consistently great. Um, there have been some really cool, uh, food carts sort of across the board. Um, but I, <laughs> I went to this place that Bill Oakley recommended to me, um, more food and company, 
which is like a family operation. It's in an alleyway off of division, which made me think of like the Sunday alleyway, which has Ruthie's in it. It's like, great. But it's just kind of the coolest place to hang out when it's nice. They've got like this huge deck. They have like a chessboard and like old salon chairs. It feels very like 2002 Portland. And the guy who runs it, it's him and his son-in-law. Son-in-law does coffee. He's a crema alum. And the uh, father-in-law is like from Philly in like every sense of the world. We're like so deeply Philly. And he's making like like pork roll and he's, you know, he's doing real deal cheese steaks that are so good. And like so much of like the real deal cheese steaks where it's like, I I was trying to describe like why I think they, they do it right compared to, you know, I think people are wanting to do cheese steaks right now. They're actually, you just got to nail that element of like super thinly shaved steak that isn't dry. That's almost like, I don't want to say suspended in cheese because it's not that much cheese, but it's like every single curvature of steak has just got that tiny light coating of cheese. And like, that's the stuff, you know, if you can nail that, that's, that's a cheese steak. So with the right, with the right roll too, with the right roll, they use Amorosa rolls. Um, but they're, Oh, so good. And it's just like, you know, you get a beer, you sit out, you eat a cheesesteak, Division in where? Division in what? How far down? Uh, I want to... S- well, what's it near? Feet. Landmark. What is it near? It is near um, that, like, paint shop. <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of near where Division Winemaking was. Kind of that area. I okay. Just look it up. But it's, um, yeah, more food and company. More um, food. Okay. Yeah, which right down the street is almost hideaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the the um, Pichadoffley's latest thing. I had a game hen there the other day that was so good. And I have loved game heads. My mom used to make them. I think they're like the perfect uh, poultry. <laughs> and it's like just so succulent. And like the, it's in the charcoal oven. So it's like, it's got this perfect skin. You get this like green coconut sambal with it. And I could eat those all day they're so so good the cocktails are fun it's you know they are so good at making a restaurant that feels fun and it's really really a fun spot um and i cannot not mention just the amazing new mexican food in portland uh the birria carts are so good i could eat birria every day of my life um so birria pdx and la plaza which is technically i think late 2019 but why don't you explain birria for those yes. uninitiated? Absolutely. So um, birria is this sort of braised meat dish. Um, sometimes it's made with goat. Um, but this specific sort of trend of queso birria um, originates in Tijuana. Um, Jalisco, I think, is sort of like the main origin point for like birria in general. But where you take like birria de res, so like, like beef, braised shredded meat it's just a tiny tiny hint of chilies and spice but it's kind of like that brooding kind of flavor it's so good um you put them in tortillas in various preparations either you know crispy tortilla or you do like something more quesadilla ish with a bunch of cheese and then you serve it with a little cup of the braising liquid and you dunk them like a french dip almost oh. or pour it over it and it is Oh, it is heavenly. It is so, so good. Um, and there are a number of good carts in the sort of East Portland and Gresham area that are doing it really well. 
Um, I like Birria PDX, Birria PDX, and um, Birria La Plaza. Both of those cards, I think, are doing a really great job. Um, and those, they do the Vampiros with like the just the crispy cheese. They do like almost like a freakish element of cheese with them too. Oh, you just, you can eat them all day. They're so, so good. So I love those carts. And then they're on the other side of the coin. There's just the unbelievable creativity at Republica, um, which is a uh, wine bar meets sort of like tasting menu-ish Mexican restaurant meets, you know, pastes in the mornings. So you'll get like really great Mexican wine there. You'll get like incredible, like just quesadillas made with amazing to salsa and like handmade tortillas with like really flavorful masa. And where was this again? I didn't catch the... This one is Republica. Repu oh, yes. Republica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, the Angel Medina place. Uh, Laura Romero is the chef. Um, but you have so much talent in there, whether it's, you know, the people picking up the wines or doing the pastries, you know, it's, it's just the kind of place where you can sit out on the deck and eat a ton of food. It's different every time you go. Um, the cocktails are good. The wine is good. It's, it's just, you know, it's, there's so many places to mention that have somehow been able to really kind of burst forth in a really difficult time. And I actually think these restaurants are incredibly creative and incredibly exciting. Um, I am sure I am missing a ton. The heat map, the eater heat map has my, you know, what's open in the last six months that I really like. And I'm sure there are ones I'm forgetting that are on that list. Um, but I do think that like, God, I've eaten some really great food in the last month um, after, you know, <laughs> a lot of me trying to cook for myself and <laughs> you know are you tired of dishes yet because that's what i'm tired of cleaning I i'm i'm so tired of eating at a box. oh my god <laughs> i'm so tired of dishes i was just complaining to my boyfriend i i do like eight rounds of dishes a day it feels like yeah um, it's and, yeah and I'm, I, I'm now at the point where I just, the kitchen won't stay clean. And it's like, the kitchen could never stay clean. But now it's like reached a new level of just, <laughs> there's no baseline anymore. Um, but yeah, no, tons of really great restaurants, tons of really great food carts. I'm excited to be eating out again. Yeah, no, it's nice. I just went out uh, for the first time in Portland a little while ago to Chicha, which I thought was really cool. I don't know if you've been oh, there yeah. over at Andina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I got takeout from there uh, Friday night. So good. And it reminded me, you know, we went, that was the last trip we took pre-pandemic. We went to Peru. We went to Lima and we went to Cusco, uh, my partner and I. And the ceviche we had in Barranco is pretty dang close to what we ate there. It, it's wow. just legit. It, it's so good. It's so fresh. And you get that really great leche de tigre that they make for it. Yeah, I, I thought that was really, really great ceviche. And the paparayena there is really good, where it's just a little crispy on the side and you have all that mashed potato on the inside. Ooh, I had that last night at home. I brought them home. And, the you know, I'm not a big drinker, but the cocktail I had there, the uh, Sexy Woman. Yeah. Oh, wow, that was so good. That was the best drink I've had in a year, easily. Oh, but I don't have a lot of to compare them to because I don't really drink much at home. But... Um, anyway, that was that was fantastic. Hey, Chris, let's pause a moment and welcome on board to the Right at the Fork family, a great new sponsor, Finex Cast Iron Cookware Company. 
Yes, we're delighted. And the reason we're delighted is because, you know, having been in advertising for years, I just love the fact that we have a podcast and we have advertisers that we truly believe in. Anybody who's listening to the podcast knows some of the others that we talk about every week and they're near and dear to our hearts. Well, so is Finex because, Court, I think you uh, agreed and I did too. It's almost every day for the last few years, ever since we acquired our Finex cast iron skillets, that we've been using them. Daily. Every single day, there is a use in my family for our 12-inch cast iron pan. And they still look great, and they're easy to clean. And one of the things I like best about this cast iron, and I wasn't a big cast iron user before this, once in a while for some kind of casserole, but I'm frying on this every day, is the smooth surface. It is unlike anything you've ever seen in a cast iron skillet. And of course, that's one of the features that caused Finex to bring cast iron to the fore in the cooking world in the last few years. It's not that it hasn't, cast iron hasn't been around for years, but now it's really become the thing. And Finex is the premium for, as they say, Finex is built for those that believe details make the difference. And that couldn't be a truer statement. One of the things I love about my uh, 12 inch skillet Chris is not only is it awesome and versatile you can do so many things with it it's like a work of art it's just a beautiful piece of iron and uh, to know that it was you know that Finex is based here in Portland and in fact I was just reading it takes 12 hours and 12 hands to create these beautiful pieces of again artwork and great cooking material yeah I leave mine right on my stovetop because it's no reason to put it away. No, it's great. You use it all the time. No I'm lazy. Yeah, no, no. I, I don't think you're lazy at all because I do the exact same thing. I want people when they walk into my kitchen to say, oh, wow, you have a Finex. Yeah, they're great. And there's a reason over this past year when I've been watching a lot of chefs like Gabriel Rucker and others doing their home cooking demonstrations on Instagram, you, you're always going to see them cooking in Finex. Yep. Uh, here might be the best thing about uh, when you purchase a Finex product is that all Finex products are guaranteed good forever. Can't beat that. Yep. Yeah, no, you can't beat that. And that's a pretty confident statement and business proposition for them to make. Mm-hmm. So find, a, f- find all their products at FinexUSA.com. Let me ask you this. Hmm? Because you skirt the, you don't really, you must get as a more annoyed than I do when people refer to you as a food critic, right? So you're a food yeah. critic, where you go, this yeah. is the food critic, Brooke, and that's not where you are, right? Mm-mm. So, but, yeah, but you, but you're great. Yeah. You know, that's how you kind of started as a food critic and you're really good at talking about food in a way that makes it delicious. I think that's what a good food critic can do make you want to go there as opposed to also make you not want to go there but it's got to be tough for you because you're actually you've been acting as a reporter not acting you have been a reporter for so long where you're just speaking facts and you can't get into opinions on food how difficult do you ever feel like you just want to break off and go get a critic's job somewhere or do your own thing you know You know, it's, I will say that a lot of food writers now have to walk this really tough line 
between because, you know, newspapers can hire like one food person. If, if that, you know what I mean? So they'll go, I need you to do like roundups and like talk about food you'd recommend, but also you need to behave like as a reporter. And those are really different jobs. It used to be, you know, you would have one person try to be as, as anonymous as possible. And they're a food critic, truly. They are not reviewing people. People are meeting them in a real way. They might call later and try to fact check, but they're not like, you know, you're because in that way, you, you don't get into situations that are tricky where you give someone a negative review and then you can't talk to them as a reporter in the future. You know what I mean? You, you have like these sort of, this sort of separation of church and state. And I think that those, that is sort of dwindling a little bit. It, you know, a lot of people, if they're hired to be a staff in a staff position, they're kind of expected to walk the line a little bit. So I am not a restaurant critic. I, I like am absolutely not a restaurant critic. I think um, as someone who has been a restaurant critic, it is incredibly hard actually. And I would, I don't think I'll, I don't think I want to be a restaurant critic again. I think um, it requires a, I just hate writing negative reviews. I, I, I'm not somebody who is totally soft and unable to tell someone if, you know, if something is bad, I just, I, I've read negative reviews I love. I just don't like being the person who's writing them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of what I do, I do walk that kind of line a little bit where I do the maps, where I am recommending stuff. Um, and I'm omitting places that I might, in a different position, might, you know, negatively review. But, you know, I'm, I'm tasting stuff all the time. I'm eating out all the time. I'm, I'm trying to stay as touched in to the market as I can. And um, I'm also, you know, behaving as a reporter. So it's a lot of jobs at once. Um, Cause you know, we, I do our, our social for the site. So I'm also sort of the social media manager. It's just, you know, um, I don't think I would ever, all of that being said, I can't see myself really doing something else. You know, I think um, there's my old boss and, and, uh, mentor uh was the the he was a media columnist at the new york times david carr and um he you know was someone i met in college he helped me get my first gig um he was one of my teachers and he used to say you know writing sucks because <laughs> your editor gives you crap your you know readers give you crap sources give you crap you work incredible out you know you're writing all the time you're working all the time you're, you know, you're doing all this stuff, but it beats real work. You know what I mean? And so I think that like, as, as tough as this job can be, when I think about doing something else, I, I get overwhelmed at the prospect because I'm like, I don't know how I could not do this, you know? Well, you've been doing it a while. Yeah. And that is an indicator that you enjoy what you do. And I think it's interesting that you said um, that, you wouldn't. You don't want to write negative reviews, so therefore you don't want to be a critic. And I think, I think restaurant criticism. I could be wrong, but I think it's changed with all social media and all the forums around for people to mm-hmm. express opinions. And then being connected on Facebook, we just went here, and I think people are a little more prone to listen to friends' recommendations nowadays than they are to seek out professional criticism. That doesn't mean that professional criticism doesn't have its place. But probably, you know, like in New York, I'm sure it's very important. Yeah. Not much of it in Portland anymore. 
I think, you know, in my opinion, and it's interesting because I just taught a food writing, I teach a food writing class, a monthly food writing class, and we did a criticism unit. um, My old boss at the Globe uh, was our guest and talked to us a little bit about criticism because she has been a restaurant critic for a long time. Um, And I think that the difference between good criticism and great criticism is that good criticism recommends a place, tells you what to get, what not to get, what are they, you know, is this good, is it bad? But great criticism can figure out what is, what are they trying to achieve? What is the context in which they're trying to achieve that? And are they successful? You know, are you able to sort of see what they're trying to add to the larger food landscape? And how, what kind of job are they doing at that? If you could tie it into a larger theme within our experience of dining or (laughs) of existing, that's excellent criticism. That's award-winning criticism. When you can, when you're able to sort of see someone's experience of, you know, running a restaurant or trying to capture something um, as, as a chef and figure out what it ties into that sort of kind of human and universal. Um, Deborah First, who was the critic at the, at the Globe, she wrote this great review of um, a Japanese restaurant there. And it was really more about um, that nostalgia and sense of place, that, that yearning we have for a sense of place and, and um, a home that we're separated from. And I think that that's, that's a sign of someone who's a really good critic. So I think that as criticism jobs sort of wane, as there aren't as many, the really excellent critics that can really take a review of a restaurant and make it something that's a larger understanding of how we eat and how we think about food. Those are the people who are going to be really successful. And I don't think those people are going away anytime soon. No, I don't think so. But I also, I don't think I'm breaking any ground here with this thought that people don't necessarily, people are ADD now. So to read a long restaurant criticism or review it's probably done less now than it was uh, years ago. I think people are just used to the Insta- Instagram posts. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I think that also the, the media landscape has changed in terms of how they, uh, you know, how it all pencils out. So, and they all ran the, um, the, the tight line between paid advertising and criticism and how that works for a long time too, so. I do think that's something I, I really hope people get about Instagram. So it, I, in my opinion, there are like three waves, right? Where there was like the criticism era where it was like, you found out where to eat because there was a critic who told you where to eat, right? And then there was more, you know, we got to the point of the internet where people are able to sort of recommend restaurants as just people without a platform with a, in a traditional sense, right? And those people, they recommended, they would use like Yelp, right? And those sort of platforms sort of have started to wane, I think. So then we have this sort of like third wave, which I think is centered around Instagram. And I think because Instagram is so positive and because there isn't that same element of like, I'm writing a negative review, which I think is generally good, you don't necessarily get a full picture of what... The dining landscape looks like. Um, and I also think that people don't necessarily get, I think because Instagram really encourages people to 
see strangers as friends, you know, to follow people like influencers who say, oh, I love this. I love that. in this way that is very human and authentic. Um, people don't think about the ways that people are um, encouraged to talk about those things, whether it's a straight up advertisement where, you know, people are being paid to talk about something. That's that's an issue. Who's doing, who's getting paid and who isn't. Right. And some people have gotten better about saying this is an ad or, you know, this is branded or sponsored or whatever. But then there's also just the element of like free stuff. Right. And if you are given free stuff, it's harder to be um, honest about it. Now, some people, you know, they'll be pretty transparent. They'll say, "Ah, I was sort of brought in here to taste this. Um, but I will say that I understand why people do that, but as diners and as just like people that are a part of the public, I think it's something really worth considering when you are following people on Instagram and you're seeing people recommend a place. Um, just, I think it's important to keep that same gut check of, okay, is everyone talking about this place? Because they were getting well, it's like everything. Read all the reviews. You can't look at one, and one person is pissed off and go with that. You got to, you know, it's like yeah. it's like the Olympic diving. You got to take take the worst, the best, knock that out, and look at everything in between. Yeah. But the one also, the one thing that uh, isn't covered with mm-hmm. Instagram very much at all mm-hmm. is service. And to me, this has been my kind of coming out of the pandemic. This has been my thing which is what i miss so you can i give me some mediocre food but give me good service where i can sit down and not do think about doing dishes and someone's filling my water and bringing me actual utensils and not plastic um that to me is a big part of the dining experience and you don't get that through instagram necessarily unless someone specifically mentions it but how much are people actually looking at text in instagram posts versus the pretty picture of the food so uh yeah you know and that is an interesting thing that i think is almost specific to instagram as opposed to other sort of formats is that because there is this element of um I think social media is really sort of set up to create that sense of wanting to be a part of something. So when, you know, you see a lot of people posting about one specific restaurant, there's this sort of like fear of missing out where people go, Oh, well, I have to go there too and take the picture. And and then I have done it. And then I can show people that I've done it. And there's this feeling of like, I'm not an outsider in this sort of experience, which means that like, you know, certain restaurants blow up on that sort of side of things. And again, this is, Uh, Very observational. I think that like sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad, but I think it is important that people keep that in mind as they sort of review restaurants this way. Um, In terms of service, you know, I've been pretty lax (laughs) about like my expectations of service right now, just because I'm kind of like, I would not want to be a server right now. Oh, right now. Yeah. We've all gotten used to that, but the day will come where restaurants need to start paying attention to it again, because they're only going to get a pass for so and yeah. I, I mean more than a pass, understanding, but the day will come where it's like, okay, this is over. I was somewhere, we'll re, re, remain nameless, that was closed for a year. Someone said, what do you have for dessert? Well, we don't have anything. We just opened last week. Okay, mm-hmm. you had a year to think about this. So that's the first thing that came into my mind. You're not, you don't have a dessert because you couldn't think about it in a year, what to mm-hmm. do. 
So at some point, that's not, that, that mm-hmm. excuse isn't going to be there. I think, you know, the, pa- the pastry program stuff is really fascinating because part of it is that like, and this was something that was ex- existed pre-pandemic, pastry chefs have been, you know, kind of people have stopped hiring them or they underpay them or, you know, and so I think that they were kind of last on the list for people to be rehired. Mm -hmm. And there's this expectation, well, oh, well, people won't order dessert out. Um, And I think that's a misconception. I think there are a ton of incredibly talent doing pastry well is really hard. And I think some chefs go, well, I studied pastry and, you know, culinary school, I can handle it. And then, you know, it doesn't show up and then people notice. Um, as a result, though, there are some really cool pastry chefs that have started Instagram businesses or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or starting their own businesses and or like catering companies or, you know, and like, I don't hate that. I don't hate that I can find really great desserts in Portland now, whether right. I'm ordering on Instagram or anywhere else. I just would, I think that it is something that restaurant owners I wonder if they will consider it as they start to hire people back that people like having a dessert out and you kind of need somebody who's really good at that to think through, you know, what is good, what is going to work with this menu in a way that sometimes a chef can't, you know what I mean? Right. Well, I just think that's part of the going out experience. I'm, I want to get back to that. I'm, yeah. uh, I mean, there's certain times getting takeout or something, but I'm, yeah, I'm older, way older than you. So, and I don't know if that's the reason, but I'm just looking forward to not getting excuses for everything, yeah. you know, or not having to, hey, I'd like to have another drink. I got to go wait in line for 15 minutes for that, mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. drink. I'm, I don't want the ballpark experience. So, yeah. um, but, so I think it's important. And maybe some of these people have Instagram, um, you know, pop-up bakeries, they'll yeah. be providing wholesale to some of the restaurants that need it. Maybe that's the way it goes. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's a smart way to do it if that's how they end up doing it. Where if, if, if you don't want to hire a pastry chef, there are incredible pastry chefs that now have access to commissary kitchens who might be looking for those sorts of clients as people start to go out to eat again. Um, I do think I went out to eat recently and I was just reminded of how amazing it feels to be served that's what um, I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like, you know, you look away and you notice that your water glass has been refilled without you looking at it. You know, when that sort of really great hospitality, I, yeah. I it's an actual heard. glass. How about that? An actual glass instead of a plastic glass cup. There. Yep. Yep. Um, I think that has been so nice. And it, it, I cried. I cried um, my first meal out, um, you know, post-vaccine. I just, it's like what I liked about this job. It's what I liked about food. And, you know, I think when you're covering the industry from your, your house and there isn't that same element of like, I'm getting out there in the same way because, you know, um, we just were in a position where, you know, my boyfriend got very sick early on in the pandemic and, you know, was immunocompromised. So we were, we weren't going out really. Um, trying to cover it from the house. Uh, you don't, you're doing your best to kind of get a feel for something, but you're not in it in the same way anymore. And that's where the joy comes from. And that's where the best writing comes from. 
is is being able to be really in the the thick of the story mm-hmm. and watch people cook and see how people are served and hear hear a kitchen hear a dining room and being able to do that again it, it like so clearly reminded me of like why I love doing what I do and why I think the restaurant industry is so special I mean I was super inspired by all these chefs that came together to feed their neighbors and feed the laid off restaurant workers and feed nurses. And, you know, there was some incredible work in the last year and a half that I found so inspiring from those folks. I can admire that, but also there's this feeling you get when you're in a restaurant that is like really hard to replicate without being there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, um, the other thing that I miss too about Portland anyway, and I'm, you know, it, was, it exists in other cities and did exist, is the camaraderie that exists. So we have so many wonderful events where you can, where you and I could run into each other or just you could talk to other chefs about what they were doing, right? So you could get information that you can't necessarily get sitting at home. You have to get out there and talk. So I look forward to that again. Um, I think what's going to happen, though, is when things open up quite a bit, they're going to be, for me anyway, a lot of people at those events that I don't even know any longer because a lot of the faces are changing. So yeah. um, it feels like there's definitely we're in, I don't know where you would put it, but generation three or four in Portland in terms of who's going to be who's going to be out and about. Some of the early generations are still around. They've been doing some great thing. Look at what Greg Higgins did throughout the pandemic. I mean, with Piggins and yeah. sticking with the it. The documentary. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think that Higgins is a great example. And, you know, even looking at like ringside, like there have been folks, these sort of longstanding restaurants that have fought to stay open and stay really relevant and exciting in like the hardest year of, you know, historically. So it's, it, it's so cool to see that. And um, it feels so exciting to return to those places and see that they're still around. Um, I was just thinking about the fact that like, <laughs> like Huber's, you know, I got like takeout from Huber's cause we, we didn't do Thanksgiving with my family. And it was like such a bizarre phenomenon to think about like getting takeout from humors, you know, when so much of that experience is doing the Spanish coffee and, and doing the whole thing. Um, but it's, it's cool to see that places have held on. Obviously not every place has, and it's incredibly sad to see, but I'm, it, it feels, I mean, when you think about a restaurant, that's like a century restaurant that's been open for, you know, that long to stay you know, this is a restaurant town with a really short, like half-life, like restaurants sort of close very quickly compared to other cities. So it's, it's an even more impressive feat to see a restaurant that's been open for over a hundred years that can survive the last year and still be here and still serving people every night, you know? And, and many did. So that's, many did. I guess let's segue into some of the, you know, the sad, stories uh the sad closings that we're never gonna see it's it's gonna be a very different scene Mm -hmm. yeah are there any that are particularly sad to you yeah um i think a lot about how um some of the first restaurants that i really sort of went to 
as you know an Oregonian in Portland that like really kind of inspired me um I remember my first dim sum experience ever was at Wong's King Uh and Wong's King was like one of the first to close um so that felt really bizarre and surreal to me um I also, I, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm going to forget a place and I'm going to hang I, I was about to say that. You can't possibly <laughs> remember every place. And by, yeah, we can, we yeah. can always revisit it later to have yeah. a whole podcast about here's what I forgot to be sad about. Right. <laughs> um, but I do think, I know it's been overstated, but Beast was like a very, when I was like a, a teenager, I was like reading about Naomi Pomeroy and Beast and my mom and I talked about going and you know, I, I, she's a big part of the reason that I'm a food writer is my mom and, and her sort of passion for food. Um, and, you know, to, I remember going with her when I, you know, first moved back and how special that was. Um, so it was really sad to see that close. But, um, but in that case, she reinvented, Naomi reinvented yeah. herself and expatriate still exists across the street. So, mm-hmm. I'm not telling you how to feel, but I feel less sad about Beast than I do about some that are just gone completely. I mean, I, of course, anybody who knows me knows that I would be particularly sad that all of Jose, Chessas and Maria, Christina Baez, that whole thing is gone. And just the fact that how hard they worked and their terrible timing of opening uh, uh, Masia right before the pandemic and investing their hearts and souls in that. I'm, I'm really sad about that. So I, I yeah. feel, you know, I, I've read about Naomi and she's happy about where she is. So I feel a little less bad about that. Less, that's fair. I think, yeah, I mean, Atala was on the Eater 38 for like it, my entire tenure for sure, probably long before I got there. Right. I think Jose Chesa is like incredibly talented. I think Christina Baez is incredibly talented and, you know, they're both incredibly kind, lovely people. So uh, that was pretty devastating. And I thought Masia was great. My first, like first meal oh, there. So yeah, it was like, beautiful. So they, put, they put their heart and souls into that. And don't, yeah. you, and Emily too, you got to, you can't not mention. Of course. Their partner. So. Love Emily. Um, also an incredible talent. Um, I think, um, in terms of other bad timing spots, I'm, Sad to see that Barking closed as soon as it did, because uh, it did seem to have really great potential. Um, and that was one of the first, like, gut, you know, rock in my stomach moments early in the pandemic was talking to them on the phone and them being absolutely heartbroken that, you know, they've spent 20, 25 years raising money and working to open a restaurant. In their first week, they have to shut it down, Girl. you know? And, like, I think, so it was really sad to see that, um, go under bakery at park barking was really setting itself up to be one of the city's top bakeries. I'm glad Catherine is sticking around, but you know, I think that was a sad one, not in terms of like personal attachment, but just in terms of, um, that history shift drinks is like an industry haunt. People loved it forever. And to see that disappear was really hard. I mean, one of the best, like forever happy hours that (laughs) that they had, it was, it was a really sad one. And they used to do these like free meals, like no questions asked free meals on Sundays. Um, So just like an an incredible members of the community beyond just being a great bar. Um, So that was sad for me. And also because I live in North Portland, um, (laughs) Liberty glass, Mm -hmm. It was one of those places that like 
just felt so Portland to go to this like old craftsman and get a beer and hang out on the patio or, you know, that was another really early closing that felt like just these, the even places that were just hangouts that beyond the food or drink, just like places that really were settings in our lives to see those disappear was, I, I think I, I felt like just, there were these like, like kind of my whole landscape, whole sections were like dissolving. You know what I mean? I was just losing all of these sort of places where I have all these memories, you know? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it gets to a point where you are just overwhelmed with how much has just disappeared, you know? Um, but I think those are the ones that come to mind quite a bit, I think. Um, but God, there's so many, you know? Yeah, no, I don't, and I mean, don't mean to put you on the spot and just a representative sample of what makes you sad. Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment and talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse. Yeah, and Ringside, it seems like back to normal at Ringside, but it's even better than it used to be because now, in addition to indoor dining and takeout, you've got beautiful outdoor dining at Ringside, and they just set up a new little area, and uh, as they said yesterday, you can, you've got an old dog learning new tricks. Uh, at ringside so they have some really beautiful space outside and of course the weather is conducive to that right now um, and their hours are Wednesday to Friday 5 to 10 p.m. Saturday and Sunday opening an hour earlier at 4 and you can order your to-go food uh, an hour before the start of business so note those hours that I just men mentioned and you can pick it up until nine when you do go to ringside steakhouse if you're if you're choosing to dine in whether that be indoor or outdoor you want to make those reservations you can do that through the website ringsidesteakhouse.com or i use the open table app chris and that makes it super easy you just hop on there you find your time you find your table and you're good to go it's it's a 30 second process at most to get yeah. a reservation at ringside so uh think about what you're doing in the next 30 seconds and Think about how productive and delicious that can be. And again, if you missed any of the information we just covered, the website, again, is ringsidesteakhouse.com. So what do you think the landscape is going to look like? How, is there going to be a different type of experience that we're going to have? Or can we just look forward to there are a lot of people we don't even know about yet who are going to take the take the uh, baton and run with it? Um I think yeah. there are quite a few, you know, I'm happy to see, like, just noted yesterday, uh, a couple of things. Lamoul reopening. Yes. Lucien Prolowitz over there. Do you yeah. know, what, I don't know what happened with him at West, but yeah. he's over at Lamoul now. And I'm just so happy to see that, mm. or that not collaboration, but I'm happy to see him there because Lamoul was always one of my favorite things. And I mean, Yes, there's a lot of sad things, but Aaron, Barnett, you did it. You got through this with St. Jack and you're opening another one, which yeah. is awesome. So, uh, and it's good to see all the chef's table folks making. What do you think about that? Chef's table, all the inroads that are outroads they're making towards mm -hmm. Beaverton and towards Lake Oswego. I've, for years, I thought that would be a good move for anybody. Yeah, I was kind of surprised it took so long. Um, and, you know, some people were ahead of it, like Salt and Straw, 
was ahead of it. Um, I think they opened the Lake Oswego one in like 2018. But like, I do think that that is, I mean, that's really exciting. Just also thinking about all the people who are moving to Portland and maybe can only afford or are looking for the sort of suburban experience to be able to just, you know, drive five minutes and go to St. Jack or Phil's Donuts. I'm excited that there's a Phil's Donuts opening there. Like that's going to be so fun. That's going to be so exciting. And the people who live in that actual development are going to be like so set to have that many restaurants right there. Um, But yeah, I think it's really exciting to see people open in suburbs. Um, There was a cool opening in Happy Valley um, that it was like the tamale boy folks and it was ranch pizza. And I think that's cool. Cause like, I mean, if you move, if you open in like us, we go, if you open in Beaverton, if you open in Hillsborough, I think those like, we're starting to see a little bit more of that development, but we're not seeing the same sort of expansion East. So seeing people want to open in Milwaukee or that's South, but you know, <laughs> Milwaukee and, and happy Valley and Gresham. I think that's that. I find that really cool. Um, so I think that all of these suburban expansions are really smart. I think they will be, it's great to know that like, and you know, there's, there's just so much talent in Portland at large. So I think that will be really exciting in terms of what the landscape looks like. Um, I, I think it's all guesswork. Um, but do you think, I think a lot of people, Go ahead. Do you think Portland will return to where it was in 2019? Let's go there. And where it was a pretty popular, very popular food destination. We were on the map as a place that was breaking, you know, breaking trends and people yeah. had to look at. I don't know if we're there now again, <laughs> especially after politically what Portland underwent in the media scope over the last year. Yeah, I think um, the national framing of protests in Portland and, and the experience of Portland, I think <laughs> in terms of the actual experience of living in Portland, I think it was um, a miss. It kind of reminds me of when people come to visit Portland and they stay downtown and they go to like this little section of downtown and think that they've been to Portland. Like you, you went to a tiny little section of Portland. You didn't actually really experience it. It's kind of like that. I think that there was a little bit of a media landscape that was honed in on this like one sort of square block radius um, that, you know, I think it, it potentially did some damage in terms of what people think of when they think of Portland. Um, and I am, I'm saying that also not at all discounting the impact of that experience for the people who were involved. Um, I just think that, you know, um, we'll see. I, I will say that I had a friend fly out here and visit um, and was not deterred <laughs> by the premise of coming to Portland. I think um, I have people who are reaching out to me asking about coming to visit. I think that there is still an interest level. And I think more than anything that has to do with like the price point for a lot of our restaurants and um, access to nature, people who've been like stuck inside and, you know, really kind of urbanly dense cities are like looking to have nature experiences. And I think Portland is sort of uniquely positioned as being a great food town and a great nature town. Um, In terms of like service, I think there is this thought that people aren't going to want to like be indoors at restaurants for a really long time, that people are not going to want to 
hang out at a bar um, for long periods of time, that people are still going to be really nervous. And I think there, there is a definite possibility that'll be the case, but most people I talk to are really excited to return to a certain level of service, to return to sort of the experience of sitting in a bar and talking to people. So I actually think there will be a big push for people who want to eat indoors, for people who want to, you know, return to normal, whatever that looks like. I think people need to have an understanding that things might cost more for a little while because people can't forget just because, you know, they got vaccinated and things might open up again, that that debt has disappeared for restaurant owners. It is still very much in play. And um, it's, I actually think, you know, there've been a lot of people who've been on hiatus for a long time, things that I've looked at like every month for 15 months going, okay, are they closed? And, you know, they're waiting, 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 waiting. We might see a huge wave of closures in like July and August um, because it's all these people going, can I afford to reopen? Oh, no, I can't. Well, or throwing in the towel. Those that think I might be able to afford to reopen, but you know what? I can't get any help. I can't, you know, we can't do this with five people. What can we do with five people that that is viable? Nothing. So. And I think the thing that's also that we're, there was a, there was a labor shortage. I was covering labor shortage stuff in like 2017. Like there, people didn't want to be in service. Um, And that did have a lot to do with the fact that you were working without health insurance and that you weren't making enough money to like afford your house. So if you're somebody who was a server and you're dealing with the same issues with back rent, And, you know, you're going, I can't afford to work for, you know, 12, 13, $14 an hour plus tips. If I'm, you know, if you're at a counter service place, tips are not what it is at like a fine dining place. You know what I mean? So I think there are a lot of people who are going, I have to make a career change in my life. I can't be in service anymore because I don't have health insurance and we just survived a pandemic. Health insurance is super important. Um, and I don't have, I can't afford to work for this rate. So I think that's part of it, right? So if restaurant owners want to hire people at a higher rate so they can afford to pay their rent, they can afford health insurance, that means food's going to cost more. And I would rather eat at a place where I know that the people who are working there are taken care of um, and pay a little bit more, maybe order a little less um, to make sure that like just the entire industry is a little bit more equitable. Um, and sustainable, right? Like I think there's for a long time, the restaurant industry has been, you know, reliant on people who are 20 in their early twenties, you know, who can afford to live in a certain level of squalor, um, for a little while and then age out of it. And then people who are really able to, you know, maybe move, moved up to a restaurant where they made better tips or, you know, uh, continued to live in a certain level of poverty, because that was what was available. Um, That's not a restaurant industry that I wanna cover. I wanna cover a restaurant industry that is able to support the people who work in it. Um, So, and then that's tough because I also hold this sort of space for, there are people who can only afford so much. That's that's where the balancing act is going to, it's gonna be interesting to see it tipping back and forth because I, I agree with you 100%, but then there are also the consumers have gone through the same shit yeah. and coming out of it. And I, I, I can't afford a lot of, or a lot of people aren't going to be able to afford a lot of $100 uh, 
you know, I just had a, yeah. I just had a hundred dollar dining experience in a parking lot the other day and said, nah, I'm not, I'm not in on this because they're not paying. I get it. I understand it, but I don't want to eat in a parking lot in plastic cups and plastic forks and knives for the same price that I used to pay when someone was waiting on me. I just, at some point I don't want to do that. I'm willing to pay a little more to have a better experience, but I'm not willing to pay a lot more to have a shittier experience. That's, that's where I am on it. And I, and I'm fine with it taking time for people to figure out, but I hope we, well, here's the other part of the equation, Brooke, is that I used to say this and I heard it from chefs. There are too many restaurants in Portland years ago. There, there was, it doesn't, for the industry and the city as a whole, there was so, it was so hard to make a decision where to go any one time. It's yeah. not going to hurt that there are a few fewer places to make a decision. That's not right as far as the city. Do you feel like we're yeah. we're going to be have a shortage of places? I don't know if we'll have a shortage. I think there's. I've been excited by a lot of the new sort of pop ups and people that have opened up. Oddly, in the vegan space. Like some of the best food I've had in the last year has been vegan food. Um, I'm clearly not vegan, but I will say that like the Sri Lankan food I've had at Mirsata, the Vietnamese food I've had at Mama Doot, the like oyster, fried oyster mushroom tacos I've had at like, pop, uh, oh God, what's the place called? Um, plant-based poppy. Like that's really delicious. So there are people that are opening up stuff and they're doing stuff. Um, I think... I think there, bad news for you, Chris, I think there will be more counter service restaurants that are opening more than sit down, dine in service because it just requires more staff. Yeah, but that's okay if I can make the choice to go there and I know what that is and I've had plenty of counter service I like, but when that's all there is or outside dining or takeout, then I get ornery. I'm just looking for, there will be the beautiful restaurants coming back. I hope the way they look, Paley's Place is not, is gonna be Paley's Place. Higgins will be Higgins. Urdaneta will be Urdaneta, I hope, I think. Yes, I think so. So, but as long as you have those options, I'm just, where I start to have a problem with it is this is all I get, is this this choice. And it's not, it's, you know, and I'm paying more than I used to pay for it. I agree with that. I think, I think, um, yeah, cause yeah, that's my thing. I, I eat every which way, you know what I mean? I, I eat out food carts. I eat the sit down several course things. I, I eat where there's food, I'll eat it. But I think, um, it is going to be interesting to see, especially the fine dining return. Um, looking at other cities, some people have seen all of their fine dining restaurants close or they've seen, their fine dining restaurants turn into like, whoa, like way, way expensive, you know, compared to where they were before, which was already pretty expensive. As a fine dining town, we are pretty low price point wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think, I think the most expensive tasting menu in Portland is still like $250, which like when I lived in Boston, $250 was like, I think standard, right. um, which is like wild to me, but- um, But we don't live in Boston. That's part of the reason we're not in Boston. Yes, indeed. We chose here for a reason. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to see how that comes back, and if it comes back and what it'll look like. Because, you know, uh, Hold Fast Closed. Um, I really, I think Berlou, I really like what Vince is doing at Berlou. He's when I talked to him, he seemed pretty adamant that he wanted to do fine dining again in some way. Um, 
but I hope he still also does a little bit of this like bakery stuff and like the street food stuff too, in some way. I, there's a well, lot. That's going. what I think <laughs> is, that's what I think is really something from my, if you ask me what's positive and mm-hmm. in my conversations with chefs on this podcast is that they're developing a whole new side of their profit center for their businesses. So, you know, there are going to be places that are, you can go in and dine, but you can also, they've got the, they'll have the takeout dialed in, which they never had before. Right. Or they may not have had before, but now they've got, they've said, well, okay, we've been doing this really well for a year. So let's continue that and let's build on that and do this. So, um, and I think we're going to see some of those takeout operations turn into new restaurants. That, oh, oh, I love this, that. I mean, this, this little patio thing out here, we could turn that into a whole restaurant. Yeah. And that was the kind of cool thing about Oma's um, to see Gato Gato do a full second restaurant based off of their sort of takeout thing. It's very different now, but I do think that that was one of the first moments where I was like, oh, I hope I, we see more of this. And you did see that a little bit with like the Instagram food businesses, Jerry's Pizza moving into Bear Paw Inn. Um, which I would be fascinated to hear if you've been there or you're clued into that, but um, that, and then, you know, um, Portland cafe doing the cafe. I think some of those Instagram people who are developing their own restaurants or opening, you know, Mama dude is included in that sort of world. I think that's cool to me because it's, it's starting from pretty much, no capital, just sort of being in your house and selling stuff online to going full restaurant. I think that if it sticks around is a really equitable way and a really interesting, like low barrier way for people to get into the food industry. If you start at this point where you're going, I, I'm just going to reach out to people this way and it's just me and I'm just going to sell what I can yeah. into, you know, because I think food carts for a long time kind of did that, but it's still really expensive to get into a food cart. You know, yeah, that's more expensive. I have been not following it closely, but closely enough. So it's been following it right into my oven. Uh, Thomas Boyce's lasagna product, yeah. lasagna PDX, and uh, lasagna project PDX. Yeah. Just it's been fascinating. But then to think, you know, to sit down while you're eating and think about the numbers, how that works, how many deliveries is he doing, how many of these is he making, how many people are buying it, you can pretty clear, quickly get to how he's doing and uh, see someone saying, this is how I'm going to survive this. And we don't know where it's going, but he's sold out every week. Why would he not stop? Right. And I think when I talked to Tom, he was sort of going, I mean, part of it is that I just have a better quality of life. Yes. Like maybe it's not forever, but I can like, you know, I can hang out. I can see my kids. I can do some yoga or whatever. Like I can just sort of live the life that I want to live and make enough to get by. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how people move into that or what people want. Um, meanwhile, like the Hey Chowdy folks, it's like, I would like to reopen a restaurant. You know what I mean? This is, you know, so it's, it's interesting. People are kind of on opposite sides where some people are like, well, you know, I tried this and I really like it and I kind of want to hang out here. And then you have the other side of people who are going, yeah, I was laid off. I needed a job. I needed to like have money to pay rent. And I would really like to return to a restaurant space. So, you know, it'll be really fascinating to see how the dust settles because I, 
we can all guess, but I, I mean, hell, I thought that we were going to be back in restaurants by like July, 2020. And I was so comically wrong. So. Oh yeah. How much were we wrong about? I was one of the people who was putting out my own meme in fe- early February of 2020. Look, there's only been, there's been 10,000 cases of the flu. 58,000 people died of heart attacks. And there's only been one case of this. I was one of those people and little yeah. did I know. Right. Down the pipe. But I think we're kind of coming out of it. And an indication would be, and I, it really it made it, it, it meant something to me. It was impactful that mm-hmm. Renee and I got out a couple of weeks ago, went to Flying Fish and had a great dinner at Flying Fish. We get out, we go, you know, and I've always considered it's no secret that I'm not living in Portland full time. I've always considered whenever I go, I run into people. It's a small, small yeah. town. So we go to 50 Licks and there you are having come out of Padi and telling us you can go to Padi. You don't have to make a reservation. Way in mm-hmm. it. I'm not Pat Padi, Longbon. Longbon. And I just thought, well, it's a light, nice indication that we're coming out of this when I'm running into Brooke at just getting out to eat. <laughs> And we're both doing different things and enjoying our uh, our uh, different experiences, but that we could that we can cross paths doing it. So yeah. that was a nice thing. Uh, we do need to get together, so yes. and just break bread. Last time we did so was at Ringside. Yeah, is that the last yeah. time? I yeah. think so. Yeah, last time we had dinner. I think that I I can't think of a time after that, but that was probably like twenty. 20- Late 2019, right? Right. So that this is my lobbying effort. I'm not sure if I'm shooting it in the foot by mentioning this. <laughs> hey, Ringside did very well through the pandemic. They had lines. They had they created traffic jams on Burnside when they started uh, doing their pickups. They need to be in the Eater 38. I've always thought that. So um, you can pitch that to me, baby. I think that's fine. <laughs> I, yeah, I I, I, pi- I pitch that uh, very informally, but I, I believe they've been around a long time and they. The food is good and the service second to none, I believe. So um, I hope you felt that when we went. Did you? Yeah, it was good. You, you I appreciated the service when we went to Ringside, right? So that's yeah. what I miss getting back to. I've been to Ringside a couple of times through the opens and closures and the masks and the outside. And they figured yeah. it out. So I think everybody's kind of figured out what's comfortable for them and what they can do well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, that's, that's a hard thing to figure out considering everything that's been going on. But you really do see people who have it dialed in and who's sort of like figuring it out a little bit. Well, it's hard to figure it out. Like I, my, the heartbreaker for me was Mother's Bistro that was going to open April 28th. And mm-hmm. then they were told to shut down and uh, couldn't do it. I, you know, poor, poor Lisa. But they just opened again. A little oh, good. mention for them, right? Mother's Bistro, I think it was June 3rd or 4th. We're beyond that. What are we, June 6th? Yeah. So I think yeah. she's open again and... God bless her in the middle of all the shit down there. So, um, and, a, and a lot of restaurants. So thank you on a Sunday. This would be officially the first time we recorded this podcast on even a weekend, I think. So I, yeah. appreciate, I appreciate you're taking the time to do it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be back, sort of. And thank your boyfriend. I hope you got a nice, refreshing tall glass of water. <laughs> He's, yeah. he's got one already, but I hope he was drinking one. So, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. I, I, okay. I think I, it's time for me to have a beverage. <laughs> Do have one, and I'll have one on you. Toast to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right